I find bugs equally as fascinating as grizzly bears. I find the wonders of nature. I like being places where I think other people have not been before. I've had many, many personal moments with bears. I've hand-raised bears and I've um, played with bears. And What I've learned is that bears have an incredible sense of humor. They are um, extraordinarily fun-loving. They just have fun. They, have, they, they really have a great sense of humor. And who knew, right? Until you actually uh, spend a lot of time with them. Once you have, a, once you have met somebody that you know, you're, you're, you're gonna care more. My greatest fear is that uh, humans are going to take over the entire planet at the expense of every other living thing on it. But people can relate to individuals, and, and it seems that um, when people spend the time and the effort to take care of a particular animal, people really care and pay attention and are engaged. Grizzly bears have been portrayed by Hollywood as cuddly, bumbling, chatty friends wearing crop tops and singing songs, while simultaneously constructed as abnormally large, people-eating predators out to maul anything in their path. In folk tales and myths, they are powerful teachers. How we portray the grizzly bear is a fascinating part of our culture, one that is changing as wild places and wild animals slowly disappear. What do you think of when you imagine the grizzly bear? Is it a noble, majestic being traversing remote, high altitudes in search of whitebark pine, or perhaps a serene creature connected to a river and forests, salmon and streams? Maybe a dedicated mother bear tending to her cubs year after year. But what happens when grizzly bears and humans share the same landscape, the same home? What happens when a mother bear is killed and her orphan cubs are left behind to fend for themselves? From the Grizzly Bear Foundation, this is Grizzcast. I'm Nicholas Scapolotti, the executive director of the Grizzly Bear Foundation. The Grizzly Bear Foundation is a charitable organization dedicated to the welfare of the grizzly bear across North America. Guided by science and indigenous knowledge, we work collaboratively to support the conservation of the grizzly bear through research, public education, and advocacy. One truck, base to bear refuge. So as you can see, we're going to drive right beneath the gondola and the chairlift. The gondola goes directly over the bear refuge, but doesn't stop at it. But it provides a really neat vantage for seeing Boo if he happens to be below you. Of course, it doesn't stop there. Whereas the chairlift, that's how our guests come up for our hourly visits. So this is Kicking Horse Mountain? That's right. It's part of the interior ranges, the Purcells, Selkirks, Monashies, and Caribous. This road, incidentally, we're driving up. Uh, it's not uncommon at all to see wild black bears on it. And uh, the last few days, we've had uh, black bears in the vicinity. And uh, maybe Nicola would like to tell you, because I wasn't here that day, there was a black bear experience at the refuge. We, uh, on Saturday, we did the black bear they got into, because 
was Boo. Himself. Was he curious? He was curious. He was smelling, but didn't really have any reaction to this uh, black bear and just moved into the isolation corner himself. He locked him in there, gave him some food, and the black bear eventually flushed itself out. This curious creature interacting with a wild black bear is a captive grizzly bear named Boo. Surrounded by five national parks, Banff, Kootenai, Yoho, Mount Revelstoke, and Jasper, we are currently a kicking horse mountain resort in golden British Columbia. Boo lives in a 20-acre, nine-hectare wildlife refuge, a licensed and government-permitted facility. But he didn't always live here. About 20 years ago, hundreds of kilometers away from Kicking Horse, Boo entered this world deep in the Caribou Mountains, alongside his mother and two siblings. Five months later, on June 4, 2002, Boo's life changed forever. Boo and his family were foraging alongside a highway when suddenly, a poacher drove up in his car, proceeded to get out, and shot and killed Boo's mother. The three cubs were suddenly orphans. One of his siblings ran into the woods, never to be found again. And the other two cubs, named after the mountain ranges in which they were found, Carrie and Boo, climbed a nearby tree. The two bears waited for days to hear their mother's sign that it was safe to come down. It never came. While the man who shot and killed the mother bear was convicted of two BC Wildlife Act violations and fined $9,000, the fate for Boo and Carrie was more ambiguous. At the time of their mother's death, there were no rescue or release programs in place for grizzly bears. Orphan cubs were either lethally removed by conservation officers or abandoned with little chance of survival on their own. But this time, other plans were brewing for Boo and Carrie. While conservation officers attempted to retrieve the cubs from their tree, BC Ministry officials contacted Grouse Mountain and their refuge for endangered wildlife to see if the cubs could be given a second chance at life in a new home. Grouse Mountain agreed and the baby bears, weighing only 12 pounds each, were flown to Vancouver, BC. There, they joined two other orphan grizzly cubs at the refuge, Grinder and Kula. Well, I know you, you obviously work on grizzly bears. We're up here at Gross Mountain, and that's how we came to meet you. But mm. you've also worked with spotted owls and, and other species that are recovering. What's your kind of point of view on how this plays an important part in like ecosystem function and ecosystem restoration? Well, it, it is hard to argue that um, uh, sending animals into a rehab situation and then sending them out one animal at a time is, is really making a big difference for, the, for their population. But where it makes a really big difference is, is, in, is in how engaged people are in the process. Because it's very difficult to um, get really involved when you just hear uh, about a population that's in trouble. But when, but people can relate to individuals, and and it seems that um, uh, when people spend the time and the effort to take care of a particular animal, people really care um, and pay attention and are engaged. 
that is to the benefit of, of their species because now we're becoming more aware. So unfortunately, you've got to push some buttons and people that are, 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 are emotional in order to get their attention. And there's nothing more emotional than hearing the suffering of a particular baby orphan animal or a particular individual who's in trouble um, to engage people in the bigger picture. Yes. So I think the rehab or the, 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 the reintroduction programs are, are really significant in that regard it, because it gives puts a face on uh, these animals and and, uh, and once you have a once you have met somebody that you know you're 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 going to care more yeah i, I find the is a great education tool for that very reason like you engage people on this individual animal they get to see the animal up close maybe learn something more about it but then you can talk about why it's in this situation yeah right? is it loss of habitat is it coexistence were they orphaned through a hunting situation or whatever it is but it's a, it's a really important teaching tool high up in the coast mountains overlooking vancouver bc i am joined by one of canada's most respected veterinarians Ken McQuiston. Ken is a scientist and director of the Grouse Mountain Refuge for Endangered Wildlife and Education, the current home of Grinder and Kula. Many years ago, in 2001, Grinder was found wandering along a logging road in the BC interior near Invermere. He weighed only 4.5 kilograms, less than 10 pounds. The same year, Kula was rescued after his mother had been hit by a truck near Bella Kula. He was the only one of three cubs to survive. Today, they are living like brothers, cared for by Ken and the team at Grouse Mountain. Making headlines in the local newspaper as a vet who has performed a root canal on an elephant, cataract surgery on a Bengal tiger, and successfully fitted a sandhill crane with a prosthetic leg, Ken is a kind, gentle man that you could tell is well-liked and respected by all that surround him, humans and animals alike. I'm a wildlife veterinarian, or I'm a veterinarian of people's pets and uh, wildlife. I became a veterinarian uh, after having been a, a zookeeper in Edmonton, and um, had always known I wanted to work with wildlife, uh, and, but I always felt badly about the way uh, wildlife were being kept in captivity. So thought I could work as an insider. That's why I became a zookeeper and trying to figure that I could help the, the existence of the animals that were there be better and, and from the inside. And then I think I've taken that kind of role with as being a, a, vet, a veterinarian too. We kind of got the inside track on a lot of wildlife issues um, and, uh, and uh, trying to make... Uh, individual animals lives better uh, you know one animal at a time and and also try to take that those little bit of learnings for population so I, that's kind of what's been driving me all my life is that uh, wildlife's an interesting part of that because you mentioned you worked in zoos yeah. you're really working with wild animals now a lot yeah. of the time and trying to get them either back into the wild if they can or like you mentioned having a good existence yeah how is that career arc where is it taking you now well um what's kind of interesting now is it's kind of become mainstream to be more concerned about the individual animals they call it compassionate conservation so it, it veterinarians are are essentially rework one animal at a time one herd at a time one one 
one small population unit at a time. Um, we're very much concerned for individuals, and and the trend has and, and the past has been that uh, biologists, people that are concerned about conservation, and uh, are, are more concerned about the population. But as the populations have become smaller, people are becoming more concerned about the individuals. So it's kind of what veterinarians have been doing all our lives has sort of now become kind of mainstream, okay? How uh, we care about individual animals a lot more than we used to. So I would say in my career, that's the, the swing that, is, that has happened uh, for wildlife. We never, uh, in population biology, would name an animal. That was, in, in research, that was considered uh, taboo because all of a sudden you have some kind of emotional connection to this and how could you be uh, uh, um, independent in your, in your analysis of the situation because now you're emotionally involved. So we would, we would call bears number 66 or bear number 89B or whatever because, um, and, they, and that still is a, a trend to today, but a bigger trend is to say, hey, we should get to know these these uh, animals as as individuals, and um, so I'm glad to see that happen. And and and, uh, but it, there's if I could just interrupt you, it yeah. brings a funny story for me is that you know now we've got Cool and Grinder up here at Grouse Mountain, we got Boo up at Kicking Horse, and but originally scientists would name them numbers like you said, and like our orcas, you know, J Pod, J25, and stuff. But now people are so concerned with them. They're like, yay, J-Pod. Like they're yes. excited about these <laughs> names, even though they're a number that he, scientists tried to take the emotion out of. But people are like super excited about J-25 just got born or whatever the number is. Yeah, it turns out a number is a name now, yeah. whereas before it was just a number. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's backfiring on them a little bit that way. But as soon as you, it, it's all about identifying the individual without trying to get an attachment to it, which is what the, what the population biologists try to try to do yeah um but uh up here at gross mountain I, I i think it's really important that people get to know these bears because now um now they get to know grinder and kula they some people come up every single day all year long to to really? to, to have their moments with them um and watch them and, and they're considered friends and what what happens is once you get to know them uh then you start not being afraid of them anymore because one of the, of course you know the, the one of the biggest reasons for us uh, killing bears is because people are afraid of them uh, it, it translates into all kinds of management techniques and worries and, and things that because we're essentially as a as a as a species we're afraid of bears but if you actually get to know a bear then then your fear level goes down the, the fact is is that Captive wildlife programs are are subject to criticism based on the fact that we have that interaction with them, and it often is at the expense of the captive animal. But if you can keep animals so that their their welfare is the highest priority, and and this interaction between humans and them is not at their expense, then I'm a big believer that there's so much to be learned and there's so much influence that those captive animals can have on the humans that are get to know them. While these bears live their lives in captivity as they can no longer be returned to the wild, they've taught people from around the world about how bears forage, play, and sleep. We are given a unique insight into bears' behavior and characteristics, challenging the narrative we are given by Hollywood. 
In 2003, Boo and his brother Kerry were moved from Grouse Mountain to Kicking Horse Mountain Grizzly Bear Refuge, their forever home that was made just for them. Sadly, the following year, in 2004, Kerry didn't wake up from his winter hibernation and passed away within the den. Boo continues to live at Kicking Horse in the largest enclosed and protected grizzly bear habitat in the world. You have some amazing mentors when you come up here to start working with Boo, so you quickly learn a lot about grizzlies and it's just, I found a big passion now that I didn't realize I had before in educating people about conservation and about bears in particular now. That's really interesting. When I first met uh, Cool and Grinder at Gross, I thought, what wonderful ambassadors for mm-hmm. conservation. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people come to an enclosure and they think it's like a zoo. Um, but what, you know, Ken originally designed here is trying to do something different to allow bears to have natural behavior and people to come and see Boo. And um, one of the great stories is, I think, is how did these bears become orphaned? Because you can, mm-hmm. you can educate people about the situation that caused these, and then that can be an opportunity for us, you know, and how we work with wild bears. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do people talk to you about that, about your Boo and how they relate to wild bears? Yeah, definitely. And, oh, and a perfect. huge part of my tours is also, uh, you know, talking to people about how to respect our wildlife. Or like, you know, you ask 90% of people who come up to into BC why they're here, and they always answer to see the grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, a big part of my tours is having them respect wildlife, understand, you know, that we, that big wild animals, and they're not just here for our tourism, uh, to live our li- their lives, and yeah, just have that respect for our wildlife is one of the biggest things, and yeah, one so of understanding the, where Boo came from is huge as well, but yeah. One of the greatest experiences I had over the years of working up here is when you have a guest arrive, and they, they don't really know anything about the operation. They think, you should never have a grizzly bear in captivity. And then when they learn the story, you can just see their face relaxing. And anyone who learns about the program understands that there's a lot more going on here than uh, paying a few bucks to come and see a grizzly bear. And so that's very gratifying. Though grizzly bears are not meant to live in captivity, these bears are seen as conservation ambassadors. Carrie and Boo, Kula and Grinder, have all helped educate the public on the challenges grizzly bears face and their importance to our ecosystems. What we've learned from their experience helps future orphan grizzly cubs get a second chance at life in the wild. I want to talk about economics a little bit, Mm -hmm. which is important because it always comes up in the way we conserve animals um, and the value of ecotourism is always brought up as a way to protect areas and things like that. And um, this is a unique type of ecotourism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how this plays into that greater role of uh, this type of ecotourism and leading to more wilderness ecotourism. And, and I often say that Cooler and Grinder are like these conservation ambassadors. Yeah. You know, um, just what are your thoughts on that? I think there's only two things that actually drive action for people. And one is emotion and the other one is economics. And some people are driven by both and some people are only driven by one of those. And unfortunately, there's a whole segment of society that is only driven by economics. And so realizing that means that if you really are trying to save something from a conservation point of view, you're going to have to reach those people and make the make the case why it is 
economically viable to have something of conservation value saved. Um, you can go out and, and mobilize people quite successfully on the on basis of emotion because they're basically like like we're talking about the orphan animals and, yeah. and those kind of things do that successfully but they just don't convince the people that say it's it's all about the economy um, so the best way to reach those people are to uh, make a conservation argument based on economics and with the grizzly bears it's staring us right in the face uh, we've known for a long time that um, a live grizzly bear is worth way more to the economy in British Columbia than a dead bear and uh, I've met people up here at Grouse Mountain talked to them and they either from this experience went to Alaska or the Great Bear Rainforest to watch bears or they had that experience and then wanted to come here to see them up close well sometimes you can spend a lot of time in the bush and not see one yeah. and so this is your the, the the value of having them here is you're much more likely to see them here than perhaps you are somewhere else can't take away from the experience of seeing a bear wild uh, in the bush I mean that's a, a memorable one sometimes it takes days to have that experience but it only takes a couple hours to have it up here um, as long as the experience is is real and not and and, and not at the expense of our, our, our bears up here and, and we've never had any concern that way our bears are acting very natural up here so so um, I also see that as like you know there's a lot of groups where we're regards to bear foundation is working with Costa Cascades and others to get you know grizzly bears into this ecosystem right that we're looking at from Grouse Mountain yeah. you know there used to be grizzly bears here and yeah. we've heard stories of one or two roaming through but it's pretty good habitat and eventually there will be grizzly bears here it's important for this ecosystem and Kula and Grinder, you know, are going to be one of those, like I said, conservation ambassadors to teach people so that they can be careful when they're out backcountry. But most of the time, people are going to want to see them. Yeah, so you mean the dispersal that's happening in a southward direction from the populations that are being protected yeah, from nor nor north of here. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they're coming. And pretty soon, we're going to have to deal with the reality that there's a grizzly bear uh, close to the North Shore wandering up there. What are we going to do about them? Uh, and, and are we going to are we going to let them be or are we going to be are we going to pull push the fear button and 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 blast them away but hopefully um like you say hopefully a, a grinder and a cooler have uh, opened the door to being a little friendlier to welcoming a little bit of more expansion of grizzly bears Despite challenges and controversies along the way, Ken has brought many dreams to fruition. He is full of passion and caring determination to connect with and understand the needs of the majestic grizzly bear, from individuals to the species as a whole. Well, I've had many, many personal moments with bears. I've hand-raised bears and I've um, played with bears and I've uh, uh, got to know quite a few individuals in my career and, and, and I, sometimes the the, the uh, pure biologist will say that um, uh, you know there's nothing to be learned from uh, a captive animal and I would say back to the biologist I would say well if if you told me that you were an expert about dogs and you had never lived with one before 
You just observe them. Could I really believe that you're really an expert about dogs? I said, some of the experts on bears are the people that have actually held them and uh, and lived with them. And so we really got to learn from those people because, so, so what I've learned is that bears have an incredible sense of humor. They are um, extraordinarily fun-loving. Yeah. You know, take away the, the urge to go out and find something to eat or some place to go mate or some place to, to, to feel secure. And when they've got those pressures off them, they just have fun. Yeah. They, they, they really have a great sense of humor. And who knew, right? Until you actually uh, spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. I always think of that because, you know, it's almost like we feel like we have to prove that bears or other species laugh or, you know, play or feel a certain way when genetics tell us that we're, you know, we're so close, that we share so many of the same genes and our evolutionary history is so connected that these things like touch and feel or sense of humor, they've evolved over time. Of course, animals, uh, we're just waiting for science to catch up with that. But to bring it back to what First Nations say is, you know, their stories through thousands of years of observation, they've, they've demonstrated that and worked it into stories to anybody who's spent any time with animals knows that they have those emotions like they are frustrated they 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 get they get excited about things they they feel sad they have uh, they have a uh, um, separation anxiety they have they have for us to imagine that for some reason they don't have the same emotions as us is, is really um, is really beyond my ability to think. We used to, in early in my career, when we were spaying and neutering dogs and cats, uh, we thought they felt pain differently than we did. So we didn't have to give pain control. So we, because they'd sit in their kennels recovering from the surgery and they wouldn't be screaming and, and, and banging on the cage. They'd sit there and just internalize it. So we think, oh, they experience pain different than we do. Well, uh, how naive is that? So the same way with uh, uh, wild animals, if we can feel fear and we can feel anxiety and we can feel empathy and then love and all those things, we should assume that the wild animals can too. In our next episode of GrizzCast, we will be speaking with Dr. Lana Cernello, co-chair of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Bear Specialist Group and Human Bear Conflict Expert Team and the lead scientist of Project Rewild. Project Rewild is a multi-year research project funded by the Grizzly Bear Foundation that gives orphan grizzly cubs a second chance at life in the wild. We work in partnership with the BC government and the Northern Lights Wildlife Society, the only shelter in North America that rescues, cares for, and releases orphan grizzly bear cubs. The results of this research will be used to inform and update policies regarding the fate of orphan grizzly cubs and create best practices for rewilding efforts across the wild lands of the grizzly bear, from the temperate rainforests of the west coast to the tundra of the Yukon, the Rocky Mountains and the foothills of Alberta, to the sagebrush grasslands of Yellowstone. As we continue to share these stories, please consider supporting GrizzCast with a financial gift by visiting our donation page today. Together, we can rewrite the fate of future grizzly bear cubs that may find themselves orphaned and in need of safe refuge before returning to their rightful place in the wild we all share. Learn more at grizzcast.grizzlybearfoundation.com. Thank you for listening to episode five of GrizzCast. 
I'm Nicholas Scapolotti, the executive producer and your host. This episode was written and edited by our producer, Lindsay Marie Stewart. Our story producer is Leah Hutchings. Interviews were recorded on location by Cass Shield at Kicking Horse Mountain Resort in Golden, B.C. and Grouse Mountain Resort in Vancouver, B.C. Allo composed our theme music, Grizzcast original album artwork by Marie Wyatt with graphic design by Lindsay Marie Stewart. Promotion by Taylor Green. Share and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.